Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of The Casual Criminalist. As always, I'm your host, Simon. Today, Colonel Russell Williams, the fetish burglar. Probably shouldn't be saying fetish so close to the beginning of today's episode, should I? But uh, I guess that could have other meanings. Like, maybe you just got a fetish for um, foods? Like, that could be a thing. It's probably not the thing we're referring to here, though, is it? Thank you, Matthew, who wrote this. Um, if you're new here, the format of the show is... I've not read this before. I've never even heard of Colonel Russell Williams. This is a brand new one to me. So uh, let's just jump in. On a chilly September afternoon in Belleville, Ontario, Anne Marson Cook, a music teacher and local artist, pulled a car into the driveway of a rural home located right off of Highway 37. As soon as the engine was shut off, Anne slid out of her car and headed swiftly toward the front door. She was in a hurry. It was her 48th birthday, and she had big plans for the evening. A party was being thrown in her honor at one of her friend's homes just up the road. As she fumbled with her keys, Howard Gray, Anne's neighbor, in her ride to the party, pulled his car into the driveway beside her own and stepped out. Howard was just as excited as Anne was and wanted to be ready and waiting so as not to delay them any further. Anne invited him inside to wait while she changed clothes and put on her makeup. Fun coincidence. <laughs> I get the feeling. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how horrible this episode gets. I'm always like a bit hesitant to like make jokes and like go on. Like, oh, it's Anne's birthday. Guess what? It's my birthday as well. I'm recording this on my birthday. I'm 36 years old. Woo! Getting ever closer to 40. <laughs> Which is kind of terrifying, but also fine. Like, I don't know, I don't generally mind getting older. I haven't got to that point in my life yet where it's like things start to hurt for no reason. I assume that's going to be pretty soon. So that has got that to look forward to. As Howard took a seat on the living room sofa, Dan rushed up the stairs into her bedroom, approached her dresser, and began sorting through her clothes. So far, everything about the evening seemed perfectly normal. However, as her mind caught up with her body, Anne felt a sinking feeling in her stomach. Something about the room didn't feel right. Although she hadn't noticed anything out of the ordinary upon entering, some change about her surroundings had registered subconsciously. She turned in place and saw what it was. Across the room from her, flanking either side of her bed, both nightstands sat with their drawers slightly ajar. Confused, Anne approached, looked inside, and saw that the contents had been rifled through, and her collection of sex toys was missing. Okay. The fetish burglar, okay. Now there's no confusion about what that's about. Someone had been inside her bedroom while she was at work, taking a quick inventory of the room around her, and realized that those items were the only things missing, and that everything else in the room was untouched. With the party now all but forgotten, she rushed back downstairs and told Howard what she had discovered. Howard, who didn't know what to think at first, suggested that someone must be pulling some kind of misguided prank on her, but Anne wasn't so sure. The pair then proceeded to search the rest of her home in order to take note of any other missing items. Howard's having a bizarre evening, isn't he? He's like, Anne rushes out and says, Howard, someone's nicked all my sex toys, Howard! Howard's like, what? <laughs> Howard, help me search my house if anything else has been nicked or whether it's just the sex toys. I don't know if I'll just be like, some things have been stolen from me. And Howard be like, what's missing? And it's like, things, Howard, things! <laughs> Uh, nothing else was missing. Whoever had raided Anne's nightstands had not bothered to take or even search for anything else. They also checked each of the home's doors and windows to ensure that none of them showed signs of a break-in. They did not, or so it seemed. Unsure of what to do next, Anne then asked Howard if they should call the police, but he said it wasn't necessary. In his mind, he believed that the police would not take her concern seriously due to what had been stolen. He said that he thought the police would show up, fill out the necessary paperwork, and then laugh the entire way back to the station. Understanding that word travels fast in a small community and not wanting to be known around town as the girl with the stolen dildos. Ah! Anne agreed. 
and the pair proceeded to check for any easily accessible points of entry. Then, satisfied that all exterior doors and windows were securely fastened, including the deadbolts and latches on the front of kitchen doors, Anne finished changing clothes, and she and Howard left for the party as planned. <laughs> You're gonna be thinking about those. It's creepy though. Like, how did the person get into the house? That's the question. If someone breaks a window and comes in, you're like, cool, need to secure my windows better. But if there's no sign of how they got into the house, I'll be like, oh, that's worse. That's somehow worse than fixing the window, isn't it? Because then you at least know when someone's broken in through a window. That night, the pair arrived unfashionably late, but they did not allow the evening's strangeness to fully taint their night. Together, Anne and Howard partied, and the next morning, once Howard had sobered up, they returned to Anne's home just as planned. <laughs> Wasn't she like 48 years old? <laughs> generally like as an adult if i go to a birthday party i'm not sleeping at some random person's house where i'm having a party it's like i'll have the birthday party at my house and sleep in my house or i will go home and go to bed <laughs> i just like being at home i like sleeping in my own bed since she was understandably nervous, Howard offered to accompany her inside and wait with her while she readied herself for work. As he once again sat in the living room, Anne rushed up the stairs past the ajar nightstands to her dresser and then into her office to copy a document. When she entered the room, Anne immediately noticed that something else was not as she left it the night before. Across the room, an outdated, rarely used computer sat atop an old desk with its CRT display switched on and its screensaver disabled. On the desktop, a Word document was open and the following text was displayed. Go ahead phone the police i want to show the judge your big dildos oh my this is super f creepy and weird this message including its misused version of your uh had been sitting there all night didn't pick up on that <laughs> not very big brain had been sitting there all night waiting for her return and screamed howard ran up the stairs to see what was going on when he entered the room she was pointing at the words on the screen this was howard said the first time in his life that he ever felt the hairs on the back of his neck stand up together they once again searched anne's home for signs of an intruder and took inventory of her personal items only then when anne was consciously checking for missing items did she notice that something else had also been taken several articles of lacy lingerie <laughs> and this is Ah, it's not funny. I know it's super creepy and stuff, but it's also funny. <laughs> I just simply, it's just like an imagine. I'm just, obviously it's scary, but I just imagine being in Howard's position of like, okay, <laughs> okay. Back downstairs, Howard rechecked the home's doors and windows and discovered that the kitchen door's deadbolt and latch, the deadbolt and latch that he knew for certain had been fastened the previous evening, sat unlocked and unfastened. This meant that whoever had used the door to access the home had opened it from the inside. Wait, does that mean what well, I think it means? Like when they went home and found those dildos missing, he was that the intruder was still in that still in the house because he let himself out later. That put the hairs on my neck up. As Howard and Anne stared at the door, they considered the message on her computer, and they both came to a horrifying realization. Whoever had typed that document after the pair had left the previous evening must have been hiding inside the home while they discussed what to do about the missing sex toys. It was the only explanation for how the intruder could have known what had been discussed and gotten past the latch door. Finally, understanding how much danger Anne had been in the previous night, their minds began to run through the possibilities. Was this the first time the intruder had been inside her home, or was this the first time he had been caught? Had he planned to do more than steal sex toys and lingerie? Had did the fact that Anna arrived home earlier than normal complicate his plans, or was it Howard's presence that had deterred him? There was simply no way to know. The pair finally phoned the police. 
Let me interrupt today's episode of the show to tell you about today's wonderful sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform that's revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. That's a lot of businesses. That's really pot. That's millions of customers. That's a lot of people who are probably, you know, pretty happy with Shopify. And um, if I'm being honest, you should become one of them, shouldn't you? Look, whether you're selling, I don't know, whatever you can say that's the beauty of shopify it's like it's not limited in fact i think in the in the copy here they even tell me you know now that uh, they do yeah in-person point-of-sale systems so i don't know i worked in a shop back in the day and there was like a till and all of this stuff and it was very complicated and very custom and everything and i, I and you know you think it's starting a shop oh my god i'm sure that's some like super expensive thing with a super expensive piece of software and all of that jazz it's like no shopify have revolutionized it they've made it so anyone can easily get up and running they even let you sell across social media marketplaces like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. It's packed with industry-leading tools that are ready to ignite your growth, giving you complete control over your business and brand without having to learn any new skills in design or code. <laughs> that sort of implies that I already had skills in design or code, which I definitely don't, Shopify. Uh, but yeah, you don't you don't need any. Like you just go in and it it just it's very easy to get up and running. Thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive business course library, Shopify is there to support your success every step of the way. Look, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify grow with you. You could start a store, right? Little business, side gig. You know, you're selling a few little items and you're like, great, okay. But then it blows up and you're selling thousands of items. You're like, well, I guess I got to go get one of those big, complicated point of sale systems and that's going to be a nightmare. No, with Shopify, you can start small and it scales with you. So you don't have to swap if your business does really well, which will save you a huge headache down the road, I'm certain. So, Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash casual. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash casual to take your business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash casual. And now back to today's episode. Mom, please calm down. Although Anne Marsencook must have been feeling both violated and terribly alone as the Ontario Provincial Police took down her statement and searched her home for evidence, the truth was... She wasn't alone. Anne was just the latest victim of a man known internally to the police as the fetish burglar. Oh god, I thought <laughs> I thought Matt meant she wasn't alone. Like the dude was still in a house. He's being questioned by the police and he's still hiding in the cupboard. <laughs> no, no, no. That's not it, thank God. As they explained to her and Howard, for the past two years, the OPP, Ontario Provincial Police, have been investigating a string of over a dozen burglaries that had taken place inside homes in nearby Tweed, Trenton, Brighton, Maddock, and right there locally where Anne's home was in Belleville. They said that the fetish burglar often targeted the homes of families and single women who were away and almost always left without taking anything except for intimate items such as sex toys or lingerie. Lingerie, in particular, always the fetish burglar's item of choice. When Anne heard about this, she was shocked. Howard, nobody warned her that a man like that was on the loose? Why had the police neglected to put out a statement or warn the public? And more importantly, if his crimes were prolific enough to earn him a moniker, how had the police not stopped him yet? The problem, the officers said, was that whoever was responsible for these crimes was extremely cautious and often left little evidence behind. He was so careful, they said, that many of his victims didn't even notice that they had been targeted until months after the break-in. After all, how long would it take you to notice that a pair of special occasion underwear had gone missing? That made catching the burglar extremely difficult, because once his victim finally reported the crime, there was basically no chance of collecting any useful evidence after such an extended period. As for what they were doing, in Anne's case, investigators were taking photographs and 
checking for fingerprints, but like the other homes that the burglar had targeted, evidence was scarce. In total, one partial fingerprint was recovered, but with no suspects to compare it to, it was of little use. In truth, they couldn't even say for sure that the print belonged to the burglar. It could have belonged to any of Anne's friends or family that often visited. Not satisfied, though, Anne then requested that the police put out a statement immediately, but the officers didn't promise anything. The last thing they wanted to do, they said, was cause a panic. They simply claimed that they would document her request and follow up with her later, something that they never did. In Anne's opinion, the officers were not taking the situation seriously, and I, with the benefit of being the writer of this episode and knowing how this story ends, would have to agree. In my opinion, based on what I've read, the OPP's biggest issue was that they treated the fetish burglar like a neighborhood nuisance as opposed to the dangerous individual that it later proved to be. And to be fair to them, at that point, he's a weird dude who goes into people's houses and steals items of little value. Weird items, yes, but items of little value he is kind of a nuisance. We don't have the benefit of foresight. Now, to be fair, it wasn't like the OPP had reason to believe that their suspect was a criminal mastermind or was really anything more than a horny teenager. As far as they knew, he never had directly confronted one of his targets, nor had he ever tried to break into someone's home while they were inside. Plus, break-in was a bit of an exaggeration, as many of the burglars' victims didn't even bother locking their doors because they believed they resided in safe neighborhoods. I've Even still, like, I always lock my door. <laughs> just in case. Simon famously loves to give tips to criminals, but here's a number one for potential victims, aka everybody. Lock your doors and windows, even if you live in a safe neighborhood. Yeah, I've mentioned this before, but I'm like renovating a house and a builder was like, do you want to put like uh, cameras up around the house? No one does crime in this neighborhood. And I'm like, well, that's nice, but yes, <laughs> just in case. Another major problem with the police's apparent strategy of let things work themselves out was that they were failing to recognize that the fetish burglar's modus operandi was changing rapidly. For example, although they were correct in assuming that he, tar he usually targeted isolated homes whose occupants were away, they were ignoring the fact that he had been growing bolder. In the months, he had begun targeting homes located on main roads like Anne's and leaving antagonizing messages for the home's occupants to discover once they returned, uh, once again, like he did with Anne. On one recent occasion, the burglar had raided the home of a family that had gone away on vacation. This was relatively normal behavior for him, however, instead of slipping in and out undetected and only taking items that would not be easily noticed, he decided to steal every pair of underwear out of a young girl's dresser and leave a note on her desk that read, Merci. He also, oh, this is occurring in Canada. Is Ontario, is that French Canada? I said, there's that French bit of Canada, right? He also took the time to cut out and pocket every single photo of the girl from the family's photo album. <laughs> That's weird bro which is substantially creepier in my opinion these are both super creepy but cutting someone's picture out of photos is like that's some like serial killer shit. when the family returned and the girl pointed out her underwear was missing they called the police and a report was made however no resolution was ever reached their case like Anne's would later be was thrown into a pile of unsolved low priority case files and forgotten in addition to this, there were also several other factors that the police had no way of knowing, but since, as we've already discussed, I know how this story ends, I can give you some inside information that the police were not yet privy to. For example, the number of homes the burglar targeted was not 10 to 15 like the police believed, it was closer to 70. And not only that, the burglar had also recently started returning to the same homes multiple times, even the ones where the occupants were on high alert after realizing that their home had been broken into. <laughs> These people are like, I don't wanna, I've bought 10 dildos! It's enough! I can't afford more dildos! Gotta start locking up my dildos! I love saying the word dildo. <laughs> I don't know why, there's something about it. It's probably getting me demonetized. But dildo. What is the etymology of that word? What a weird one. 
Shortly before being caught by Anne, he had been inside Anne's home on two separate occasions, but neither she nor the police had any way of knowing this. Oh god, this is so f- creepy. Also, he was doing much more inside these homes than stealing underwear, but that's not something I'm ready to tell you about just yet. I'm still too sober. <laughs> drinking writing this, Matt. I wish I was drinking reading this. I'm just drinking this coffee that is so strong, I feel like I'm short of breath. I've only had like half of it, and it's like, oh! God, it's insane. The Starbucks coffee is just so strong sometimes. Overall, had the OPP known about everything I just told you, I believe they would have taken Anne's complaint more seriously, but at this point, they simply had bigger fish to fry. They firmly believed that the fetish burglar was a neighborhood nuisance, but not a particularly dangerous one. Unfortunately, their assessment could not have been more wrong. Cozy Cove Lane Several miles east of Anne's home along Highway 37, inside a small house located along a street known as Cozy Cove Lane, 46-year-old Laurie Massacote was settling in to watch her favorite television program, Law and Order. <laughs> I've never seen Law and Order, but even I'm familiar with that. That's the sound by right? So, <laughs> or something like that. As usual, Laurie was exhausted after a long day, and by 11 o'clock she was fast asleep on her living room sofa. Roughly an hour later, as the credits began to roll, Laurie awoke in a panic. She couldn't see, she could barely breathe, and there was something covering her face, smothering her. In those first few moments, Laurie believed that her house was on fire, but as she managed to stand up, she realized it was not smoke. It was something solid. There was a blanket wrapped tightly around her head, and someone was forcing her back down onto the sofa. At that moment, fear set in, and Laurie began to scream. However, as she did, she heard a man's voice telling her to be quiet and stop struggling. When she didn't, Laurie felt a severe pain in her face, and the man began beating her with metal object and ordering her to calm down. With her head pounding and her face bleeding from the attack, Laurie stopped fighting just long enough to hear what the man was saying. Urgently, he leaned in and explained what was happening to her. He said that Laurie was being robbed, and there was at that very moment a team of men inside her home who were there to clean her out. As part of that team, it was his job to keep her quiet and ensure that everything went smoothly. He said that if she cooperated, they would take her valuables and nobody, especially her, needed to get hurt. In her disorientated state, Laurie hesitantly agreed and allowed the man to seat her. With adrenaline pumping through her veins, she struggled to stay still as he securely tied the blanket around her head to serve as a makeshift blindfold. Seeing my face, he said, will be very bad for both of us. As the rest of the men moved silently around the home, he tied her arms and legs to a chair and began asking her questions. He wanted to know what her name was, where she worked, who else lived in the home, where they were, when they would return, and so on. Despite being severely beaten, Laurie was able to answer these questions quickly and accurately, while constantly reassuring the man that he and his friends could have anything they wanted while begging for her life. The man comforted Laurie by telling her that she would be fine as long as she cooperated. He then began adjusting and tightening her restraints even further. As he worked, the man suddenly became panicked and shouted at her, are you looking at me? Laurie said that she was not, and the man calmly replied, Good. You really don't want to see me. With Laurie now almost completely immobilized, he stood and said that he needed to go and check on the others to make sure that the robbery was going according to plan. Laurie listened as he exited the room and was left in complete darkness with nothing but the sounds of the blaring TV to comfort her. Several minutes later, he returned, but he said nothing, fearing the man more. Now that he wasn't speaking, Laurie broke the silence by requesting a cigarette to calm her nerves. The man refused and apologized and said, the others wouldn't like that. As her adrenaline began to wane and the pain set in, Laurie then requested some Tylenol, and to her surprise, he agreed. The man then untied her, walked her to the bathroom, and allowed her to lean over the sink to catch water in her mouth. He said she had to take the pills this way because he didn't want to touch a glass and risk leaving his fingerprints. After this, he returns Laurie to the living room and used a knife to fashion a makeshift straitjacket out of a pillowcase and slid it down over her arms and stomach and placed her in a more comfortable position. 
It was at this point the lorry began thinking that this man was having second thoughts about what he was doing. He was making her as comfortable as possible, providing her with medicine for her headache, and even apologizing for hitting her. While doing this last thing, his voice became sullen and defeated. It's just him, right? There's no one else in the house. It's just this one weird dude, and he's just telling her that so she behaves. She also began wondering how much longer the robbery was going to take. Laurie knew the man had attacked her at midnight because she could hear the end credits of Law and Order playing on the TV during the attack, but since then, another whole episode had played. That meant that she had been tied up for at least an hour, possibly as long as an hour and a half. As she contemplated the strangeness of the situation in which she found herself, the man then leaned over and began stroking her hair. He asked, Would it be alright if I took a picture of you? At first... <laughs> so bizarre what are you up to at first laurie was confused and asked why he needed a picture but the man assured her that it was nothing sinister bro it's nothing sinister you've wrapped her up in a pillowcase what the f you broke into a house well there ain't nothing sinister about that he said that he wanted the photos as collateral to ensure that laurie did not go to the police after they left he said that if she did he would distribute the photographs to her friends family and neighbors what but what <laughs> why wouldn't she she's like she's not doing anything wrong like what would the problem be if he distributed the pictures it's her in a pillowcase laurie assured the man that the photographs weren't necessary and she had no intention of calling the police but as she was saying this she heard the shutter of a digital camera followed by a dozen more shutters she sat in silence as the man moved around her taking pictures from different angles and asking her to reposition herself for him not wanting to anger him she complied it was at this point that she felt a knife pressing against her throat the man ordered her to remove her clothes. Please don't make me do it for you, he said in a terrifyingly calm voice. Over the next two hours, the man forced Laurie to pose for him as he continued to take provocative photographs of her from various angles. Once he had grown tired of seeing her naked, he then retrieved lingerie from her bedroom and forced her to model it for him. Once this nightmare was over, he then said that the rest of the robbers had finished loading her valuables and that he had all the collateral he needed. Laurie, who was shaking in terror and convinced that he was going to kill her, was relieved when the man then covered her naked body with another blanket and said that he was going to leave. He just needed to wipe away any fingerprints that he may have left throughout the night, and then he would be gone. More interested in seeming cooperative than identifying her attacker, Laurie then reminded him to wipe away his fingerprints from the Tylenol bottle before he left. The man thanked her graciously, walked out of the room, and was gone. After waiting a short time to ensure that she was not going to accidentally see his face, Laurie struggled out of her bindings and hesitantly removed her blindfold. She grabbed the remote to silence the TV and heard nothing but silence throughout the home. The robbers had left. She was alone. The man had gone. And as promised, she was alive. Laurie then stood up, looked around, and began sobbing. She realized in an instant that nothing inside her home had been taken. There was no robbery. And the man who had taken pictures of her had been there solely for her, not her valuables. This somehow made the situation even worse, and she immediately picked up the phone and dialed the police. I wouldn't say somehow it made it worse, it just is worse. It's much more creepy. It's like with a robbery, it's like at least there's some financial incentive, but when it's this, it's just like it's kind of just the in the incentive's just weirdness. Creepiness. Mistake after mistake. Several hours later, as the sun began to rise, residents of Cozy Cove Lane awoke to find police cars surrounding Laurie's home, their lights casting a blue hue across the entire neighborhood. As they all slowly converged, officers approached and began taking statements. They were hoping that someone, anyone, might have seen or heard something suspicious during the time of the attack, but unfortunately no one had. This was 
Disappointing, yet not surprising. You see, although Laurie and her neighbors did not know it yet, the police had made another major mistake. Although exact details have never been made public, Laurie's sexual assault was the second sexual assault that had occurred on Cozy Cove Lane in under two weeks. Obviously, due to their close proximity, police immediately suspected that the crimes were related as soon as they arrived at Laurie's home, but as their investigation continued, they discovered numerous other similarities that could not be ignored. You know, what are the odds of like two unsolved things occurring on the same street? Like, come on. The first assault, which involved a woman who wished to remain anonymous, happened exactly 10 days earlier, while she was caring for her eight-month-old daughter inside her home. That night, while the child was asleep, a masked man broke in, confronted her inside her bedroom, and knocked her unconscious with a flashlight. Then, when she awoke later, she found herself naked, blindfolded, and her hands tied behind her back. The man had told her that if she screamed, he would kill her. So far, this all sounds extremely familiar, but these details were not necessarily unique. Most sexual assaults that occurred between strangers follow a similar pattern. However, the next part was undeniably distinct. I'd say the location, the proximity, makes these pretty distinct. Just as the man would later do to Laurie, he then forced the young mother to model her own underwear as he took numerous pictures of her over the course of several hours. Once he was finished, he untied her and ordered her to count to 300 before removing her blindfold. The mother did as she was told, and when she uncovered her eyes, he was gone. Police also identified another unique detail. At no point throughout either assault had the man even attempted sexual penetration. This was extremely unusual for violent offenders who had no problem whatsoever laying their hands on their victims. This led the police to believe that the man they were searching for was very likely impotent and almost certainly lived nearby. They believed that he was targeting people who he saw every day. That meant that Laurie and the woman's attacker was likely one of their own neighbors. Now, it should come as no surprise that this man and the fetish burglar are the same person. He is the focus of our episode, and I made it clear that his crimes were going to escalate. However, this is something that the police were unable to recognize. To be honest, I can't say I blamed them too much for this. The attacks were so vicious and unlike the MO of the fetish burglar that it's easy to see why the police would not immediately assume that they were connected. Yeah, the only reason I know these are connected is because they're in the same episode together. But one person seems what did they describe him as like harmless or like inconsequential a nuisance a nuisance burglar and this other guy is like a proper predator although they are the same person so they're both proper predators but i also wouldn't have made the connection also as i've said the burglaries have been occurring for over two years and these assaults had both taken place within two weeks of each other without insider knowledge they do seem very isolated however one major error that the police can be faulted for is failing to notify the residents of cozy cove lane that a sexual assault had occurred within their neighborhood the first woman understandably wanted to remain anonymous out of embarrassment but nothing was stopping the police from issuing a general public warning still though they did not their hesitation, you see, came from the assumption that the first assault had been a targeted assault and that nobody else was in danger. This was a short-sighted decision that carried serious consequences. Determined to find a suspect, investigators sat Laurie down and began probing for as many details about her attacker as possible. Unfortunately, Laurie said that despite being near the man for so long, she couldn't give them any details because she really had been blindfolded throughout the entire encounter. At one point, she may have seen him wearing a pair of white tennis shoes, but she couldn't be certain. Inside Laurie's home, they were able to collect some DNA evidence, but with nothing to match it to, they were at a dead end. With so little to go on, the police began going door to door to speak with Cozy Cove residents and identify any obvious suspects that stood out. Just cruising around looking for a dude who looks weird. It's like, you seem like a weirdo, sir. You're now on the list. They managed to speak with all but one of Laurie's neighbors, but this canvassing effort yielded little as well. Eventually, with nothing else to go on, they were forced to pack up and go home. There was nothing more they could do. However, they did finally release a public statement and apologize to Laurie for not doing so sooner. 
it was of little consolation to her. As the days passed with no new leads, Laurie became increasingly anxious about something she had not mentioned during her initial meeting with the police. Throughout the duration of her three-hour assault, Laurie could not escape a nagging feeling in the back of her mind. She couldn't recall when or where, but she was sure that she'd heard the stranger's voice before. He had a distinct voice, calming and measured, and she knew that she would immediately recognize it if she encountered her attacker again. Days later, she realized the voice it belonged to. It was her neighbor from down the street, Larry Jones. The next day, Larry arrived home to find an OPP SWAT team surrounding his home. <laughs> He's like, uh-oh, gigs up. He was quickly detained and brought into an interrogation room where the police proceeded to grill him for hours about his whereabouts during the time of the assaults. He was asked to give fingerprints, DNA, and a polygraph test, all of which Larry eagerly provided. The polygraph was particularly grueling as it lasted for over three hours and covered a litany of uncomfortable, personal, and embarrassing questions about his life. You're like, no, I'm not doing that, lawyer. Lawyer, 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 lawyer. <laughs> After passing every test given to him, providing a solid alibi, and being ruled out by the DNA evidence, Larry Jones was officially cleared as a suspect after three weeks of investigation. That is, I mean, the polygraph's bull, but the DNA stuff? They've ruled him out DNA wise? It's not him! Unfortunately, Laurie had mistaken Larry Jones's soft-spoken voice for the voice of her attacker, and her mistake had massive consequences for him. Even after being cleared, Larry's reputation had been irreparably damaged. That sucks, bro. So it wasn't him. It was just a dude who was also soft-spoken. <laughs> oh, that poor Larry. Two murders. As the police were still fully preoccupied with investigating Larry Jones, the real fetish burglar was still on the loose, on the hunt, and about to escalate yet again. On the morning of November the 26th, 2009, the boyfriend of Corporal Marie... France Camot arrived at a home in Tweed and made a shocking discovery. He found Marie lying in bed with duct tape covering her mouth and nose. Over the bedroom window, a sheet was hung as a makeshift curtain using two steak knives that had been driven into the drywall on either side of the window's frame. When the OPP arrived on the scene, they originally believed her death to be a suicide. However, after linens were found soaking in bleach inside her washing machine and blood droplets were discovered in her basement, it was reclassified as a homicide. While gathering background information on Marie, they learned that she was a corporal in the Royal Canadian Air Force and currently working at CFB, Canadian Air Force Base, in Trenton as a military flight attendant. Recently, she had been out of the country for work and had returned two nights earlier to her home in Brighton. While they attempted to identify potential suspects, one other thing struck them as odd. Marie had mentioned to her boyfriend days earlier that someone had been messing with her underwear drawer before her murder. Initially, she had blamed the boyfriend for the intrusion and would not believe him when he denied it. Somehow, the OPP still did not formally connect Marie's murder to the fetish burglaries, and no suspects except for the boyfriends were identified. One month later, on the 28th of January 2010, Andy Lloyd received a call from his mother saying that his sister Jessica Lloyd had not shown up for work as scheduled and nobody had been able to reach her despite calling all morning. Since this was out of character for her, Andy drove the short distance to Jessica's home to check in on her in person. When he arrived, he found her car parked in its usual spot in front of the house and her purse, her keys, and her cell phone were all inside the home. However, there was no sign of Jessica herself. Knowing that she never left home without these items, Andy then searched the rest of the home for signs of a break-in or a struggle, but he found neither. It was as if his sister had just stood up, walked out the door, and disappeared. People don't leave their home with none of their stuff. Like, you lock yourself out, you have no money, it's like, I'm just gonna get myself in trouble. 
Speaking of which, walking away seems like the most likely scenario, as a pair of her brown suede shoes had disappeared along with her. Andy then called the police to report Jessica as missing. By this point, the OPP and other local police departments were finally beginning to cooperate and share information. As such, they strongly believed that Jessica Lloyd was in great danger and had likely been abducted by Marie France's killer. Soon, an entire division of police, over 2,000 volunteers, and a special search and rescue team had been dispatched from CFB Trenton and began combing the woods near her home, interviewing neighbors and collecting witness statements from potential witnesses. This is an excellent move. I get the feeling as this section is entitled two murders that this isn't going to end well but the fact that the police take this and two thousand people are out looking for her and they're like this is a major priority i like that i felt like this is a point in uh another episode where the police would be like oh it's probably unrelated she's probably just gone for a walk she's gone for a really long walk with none of her stuff but the fact that they're like cracking on this i like that while doing so, the OPP caught a lucky break. One man, a truck driver who had been driving down Highway 37 the night Jessica disappeared, told them he'd seen a white SUV parked in a field near Jessica's home on the night in question. He said that this SUV struck him as odd because it was parked in such a strange spot. He had been traveling that road for years and had never once seen anyone park in that field before that night. Working off this tip, investigators searched the area and found a crucial piece of evidence frozen in the mud, two distinct tire impressions from either a large SUV or a truck. They were in perfect condition. With photographs and impressions of these tire treads in hand, they then set up six emergency roadblocks along and around Highway 37 to stop and inspect the tires of passing vehicles. They believed that based on the locations of the crimes that their department knew about, whoever had killed Marie and abducted Jessica must have been a frequent traveler of Highway 37 and used the road to identify and select potential targets. They believed that he might even use the highway to commute to work, and it didn't take long for their theory to be proven correct. On February the 4th at around 7.30pm, the OPP's roadblock stopped a whiteness and pathfinder matching the witness's description, but investigators almost let the driver go without inspection. That would have been a critical mistake, a mistake that someone within the department had already made once on Cozy Cove Lane. The vehicle's driver, David Russell Williams, was a well-respected colonel in Canada's Royal Air Force and a man that many people in the community knew well. When police pulled him over, Russell showed them his military ID and stated that he needed to be let through quickly because he had a sick child waiting at home. At first, the officers were willing to let him through. However, a senior officer spoke up and told Russell that a roadblock was simply a standard vehicle safety inspection and wouldn't take long. He could go about his business as soon as it was complete. As the supervisors were explaining this, other officers were surrounding the vehicle to conduct visual inspections of the car's headlights and emission system, while another officer secretly completed the group's primary task. The officer was crouched down beside the tires and comparing Russell's tire treads to the impressions taken from the field, and they were an exact match. He ain't going anywhere! The supervisor was then made aware of this, and Colonel Williams was allowed to leave. However, he did not leave alone. Just down the road, an unmarked car began following the Pathfinder as the OPP tried to figure out what the hell they were going to do. Wow, this is great. This police work, I like it. Mwah, competent police work, because they don't just arrest him. Uh, they're like, cool, let's follow him and let's see where he leads us, which I like. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> like, I, like I'm some sort of super genius who would think of everything, but... Like, this is good police work. I like it. The Colonel. 
As soon as they realized that their prime suspect was a well-respected colonel in the CRAF, the investigators knew that they needed to tread lightly to ensure that they were not about to make a massive misstep by accusing a man whose name and reputation garnered so much respect within the community. To give you some idea of just how trusted and well-known Colonel Williams was, just days earlier, he'd personally made a television appearance after signing off on a multi-million dollar purchase order for new aircraft for CFB Trenton. He had also received top-secret security clearance, the highest level of security clearance available in the Canadian Armed Forces, and in the past he had been charged with personally transporting high-ranking government officials, military commanders, and foreign dignitaries. These included the Canadian Prime Minister, Canada's Governor-General, as well as Queen Elizabeth II and the Duke of Edinburgh, while they visited Can- Canada. Holy f- Okay. To say that the police were nervous about who they were investigating would be a massive understatement. One misstep could easily cost them their careers. How and why? That's not fair. It's like, just because someone is high-profile, doesn't mean they should have the power to like lean on police officers because then it makes them less willing to investigate people with money and power which sounds like an incredibly naive statement and i guess it is but it shouldn't be like that should it to make matters even more complicated, as they dove into Colonel Williams's past, they found an exemplary record. They learned that Russell Williams had been in the military for over two decades and had acquired multiple awards, including the Southwest Asia Service Medal with Afghanistan Clasp. This award indicated that he had been part of Canada's war effort to combat terrorism in the Middle East following the 9-11 terrorist attacks in America. He also had no criminal record, no record of military misconduct, and no other indicators that he was a violent or sexually abusive person. The colonel was married to a woman he had been in a committed relationship with for over 20 years years and had friends who spoke very highly of him. The more they looked, the more impressed they became by what the colonel had accomplished. He seemed like a shining example of military excellence, and this terrified them. How, they wondered, could someone like Colonel Williams be responsible for such heinous acts, and how were they the first people to make this connection? Because he's smart and he hides it well. Like, obviously, he wasn't leaving any evidence behind, and yeah, he just seems like a very competent individual who turned that competence to a military career and then also to crime, assuming it's actually him, which I think it is because he's the person this episode is titled after. So let's carry on. They didn't have the answer to these questions. However, the evidence couldn't be ignored. First, most damningly, were the tire tracks. Although the officer had only been able to perform a quick visual inspection of the tires, there was no doubt in his mind that the treads matched the imprints. This, combined with the truck driver's description of Russell's pathfinder, left little doubt in the minds of investigators that Russell's vehicle had been parked near Jessica Lloyd's home on the night of her disappearance. Second, although this was purely circumstantial, Russell Williams had a significant connection to each of the victims in question. Russell lived on Cozy Cove Lane next to Laurie and the unnamed mother, worked at CFB Trenton with Maria, and commuted along Highway 37 past Jessica Lloyd's home. This meant that Russell had direct and available access to all four women and during the time of their assaults. This was a coincidence that could not be ignored. While checking into Williams's living arrangements, they also discovered that he owned a second home in Ottawa, a new build that he and his wife had just moved into. He also slept on base at CFB Trenton and traveled for work regularly, which meant that his schedule was constantly changing. This investigators believed could allow Russell the time and privacy to go behind his wife's back and commit the crimes he was suspected of. Lastly, and this is the least concerning thing, Russell did not have any children. That meant that his claim of rushing home to tend to a sick child was provably false and indicated that he simply did not wish to have his vehicle checked. Yes. Although, it could be someone else's child. He's like, a a sick child, not my sick child. Although, that's definitely what he was implying, right? Weird to make up that lie. There's plenty of lies you could make up. Urgent work business. I'm a colonel. 
very busy. While none of this was concrete enough to arrest him on, it did keep authorities invested enough to keep him to keep pursuing him. Then, after two days of intense around-the-clock investigation, they brought their finding before a judge who agreed with their assessment and granted them a search warrant for Russell's home. The arrest. On February the 7th, the day the police planned to execute their warrant, Detective Sergeant Jim Smith called Russell on his cell phone and requested that he stop by the police station in Ottawa to answer a few questions regarding an ongoing investigation. Smythe was deliberately vague, and Russell agreed without asking any questions. Before leaving his home in Ottawa, he told his wife that he'd be back shortly. However, Russell already knew that his promise uh, was nothing more than wishful thinking. Approximately 30 minutes later, the 40-year-old colonel arrived wearing civilian clothes and was led into an interrogation room and seated across from Detective Sergeant Smythe. Russell, whose short hair, muscular physique, and well-groomed appearance gave him a very stereotypical military look, was both polite and jovial throughout their initial conversation. This light mood would soon evaporate as the reason for his visit was slowly revealed to him. Once the pleasantries were over, Detective Sergeant Smythe spoke calmly and rationally to Russell, laid out the evidence before him, and revealed a great deal about what they already knew. He explained how they had matched the SUV's tires treads to the one taken from the field, and how they had used that to match and obtain a search warrant for the properties that were, at that very moment, being raided. He told Russell that they would be impounding his vehicle to search it for evidence, and that if he knew anything about the disappearance of Jessica Lloyd, he needed to speak up now, because things were not looking good for him. Smith urged Russell to provide an explanation for what he had called an unfortunate misunderstanding. This dude's still hoping he's like, it's not the colonel. He's such a good dude. It can't be the colonel. Not him. At this time, Russell, whose demeanor had shifted to stunned silence, began to weigh his options. He knew what the police were about to find inside his home, and he knew there would be no way to explain it. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, God. After roughly one hour of denying his involvement and offering no possible explanations, Russell finally broke. I want to minimize the impact on my wife. How do we do that? Detective Sergeant Smythe told Russell that he needed to start by telling the truth and requested to know where Jessica Lloyd was. After taking a moment to consider, Russell responded, Got a map? <sighs> it's two murders, isn't it? We know it's two murders. Ah. The Confession As search teams arrived at Russell's home in Tweed and began the tedious process of searching, seizing, and documenting all relevant evidence, Russell sat with Smythe for over ten hours, giving him all the details needed to tie their investigation together. So let's start with Marie-France Camot. Russell said that before her murder, he'd only ever met her one time on a military flight, and he was serving as a commander. During this brief interaction, he says he identified her as a potential target, and when they later landed, he used his rank to access her personal file. He noted her home address, phone number, schedule, relatives, health information, and everything else available to him. Later, while she was away on a scheduled flight, Russell visited her home in Brighton, where he hoped to learn more and satisfy his urges non-violently. He said he entered via an unlocked basement window, rummaged through her underwear drawer, and spent over an hour taking photos of himself wearing her clothing. He then exited the home, leaving everything as it was, save for a few pairs of underwear and bras that he had stuffed down his pants. When Marie returned home, she immediately noticed that someone had been inside her home, but as we have discussed, she blamed her boyfriend for the intrusion and did not phone the police. The following night, on November the 25th, Russell returned, parked his Pathfinder in a nearby forested area, switched off his Blackberry, and approached the home on foot. From outside, he could hear Marie speaking to someone on her cell phone and decided to use that opportunity to slip inside through the same basement window that he'd used the prior day. 
At this point in the interrogation, Russell revealed that his original plan had been to surprise and subdue Maria while she was asleep. However, instead of going immediately to bed once her call was complete, Maria decided to search the home and ensure that her cat was safely inside. This cat, unfortunately, had wandered into the basement, and despite Russell's best attempts to shoo it away, was sitting in the center of the floor, staring directly at him. When Maria descended the steps and saw that her cat was staring into the darkness, she followed its eyeline and spotted Russell hiding behind the water heater. Russell said that he was then forced to improvise. He leaped out at her, she screamed, and he struck her in the face with the handle of a flashlight. This blow knocked her unconscious, and she fell backward onto the concrete floor. Russell then dragged her body to the foot of the stairs and fastened her arms to a banister using a rope. Russell's story was corroborated by the blood droplets and drag pattern that had been identified when the police had searched his home originally. From here, Russell said that he used silver duct tape to cover her mouth so that she couldn't scream again when she woke up. He then took photographs of her unconscious body until she awoke. With Maria once again fighting back hard, Russell dragged her up the stairs and into her bedroom, covered the windows using a sheet, and set up his camera and recorded himself sexually assaulting her. The assault lasted for over two hours and included penetrative... A word that I can't say because this is on YouTube and otherwise they'll demonetize me, but you know what it is. Something that up until this point, Russell had never done before. He also took her underwear and lingerie from a dresser and forced her to model it for him as he took more photos. Then, even though he had been wearing a mask throughout the entire encounter and Marie had shown no indication that she recognized him, Russell decided to do something else that he'd never done before. He climbed on top of Marie and attempted to smother her using her own pillow. Somehow, despite being pinned underneath him, Marie managed to push, push Russell off and managed to flee the home. She made it as far as the living room before he was able to catch up and subdue her once again. He beat her with his flashlight until she passed out and then he used more duct tape to cover her nose. Maria died of suffocation while unconscious. The entirety of her assault and death were captured on camera. Jesus. In an effort to shield his wife from any blame, Russell willingly directed police to the footage, which was stored on two SD cards inside his office. Russell then said that he moved her body back into the bedroom, where her boyfriend would later find her, threw the sheets with his DNA on them into bleach, and then fled the scene. When asked why he decided to kill Marie instead of letting her go, Russell explained that he believed the police would be able to tie Marie's break into the ones on Cozy Cove Lane if they learned about the photography session. He said that if that happened, police would realize that one of Laurie's neighbors also worked at CFB Trenton with Marie would put two and two together and Russell would be caught. It was a risk that he wasn't willing to take. So now let's talk about Jessica. A month later, on January the 27th, 2010, Russell was driving past Jessica Lloyd's home when he noticed her jogging on a treadmill through one of her home's windows. At that moment, he selected her as his next target. The next day, while she was away from home, he parked his pathfinder in the field where it would eventually be spotted and entered the home through the kitchen door to ensure that she lived alone and found an easily accessible point of entry for later. Satisfied with his findings, he exited the home and waited nearby for her to return. Not wanting to make the same mistake as he had with Marie, Russell then said he waited for Jessica to be asleep and then he entered the house. Then, as he had with Marie, he attacked her with his flashlight, bound her with a rope and duct tape and photographed her and then sexually assaulted her. Then, for some unknown reason, Russell said that he told Jessica that they were going to go for a drive. He said that he needed some air and promised to release her once they returned. He bound her hands, helped her into her shoes, the brown suede shoes that Jessica's brother had noted were missing, and helped her into the passenger seat of his Pathfinder. He then drove Jessica to his home on Cozy Cove Lane and ushered her inside under the cover of darkness. Now in his home, Russell forced Jessica to shower with him and then told her that he would release her the following morning. He walked her to his bed, tied their bodies together using a rope, and said that she should try and get some sleep. Unsurprisingly, neither he nor Jessica were able to sleep very well that night. 
Russell never gave a reason for bringing Jessica to his home that night, nor did he ever explain why he had kidnapped her in the first place, although he did say that he really did intend to release her eventually. Whether or not this is true, it doesn't matter, but it's just an interesting note. His actions that night didn't make sense, but nothing Russell admitted made any sense anymore. He was losing control of his urges and letting himself make mistakes. Russell then told Smythe that at some point during the night, Jessica began to have a stress-induced seizure. She had warned him that this might happen, and Russell untied her, rolled her over, and talked her through it. He wanted to make sure that she didn't bite her tongue off and bleed out. Once the seizure had passed, Russell made Jessica breakfast, had her model some more of her underwear as he took more pictures, and then finally told her that he was going to let her go. As they walked toward the front door, though, Russell panicked, and he struck her in the back of the head and laid her down beside his fireplace. He used a rope to end her life. Police were able to identify a massive bloodstain underneath the tile that corroborated this story. Russell said he then wrapped her body in duct tape and placed her inside his garage. The next morning, as the police were searching Jessica's home, he cleaned his home to remove any evidence of their night together. This cleaning took all day and included tossing the remaining duct tape, scrubbing the bathtub, disposing of the sheets, and scrubbing the area where Jessica had died. That night, at around 11pm, as Jessica's decomposing body lay in his freezing garage, Russell drove to CFB Trenton to sleep on base and collect his thoughts before work. The next morning, he flew to America for a meeting and then returned to base and personally ordered an emergency search and rescue team to aid in the search for Jessica. Just like the note left on Anne Masson Cook's computer, this was done simply for Russell's own amusement. Later, the family of Marie-France would also realized that Russell had sent them a letter of condolence shortly after murdering her. The following day, as the body lay in his garage in Tweed, Russell returned to another home in Ottawa, helped his wife with chores around the house, and slept as if nothing had happened. On Tuesday, as the police were setting up roadblocks along Highway 37, Russell returned to Tweed, loaded Jessica's body into the back of his pathfinder, and dumped her along a back road not far from its house. Russell pointed to the exact location on a map provided by Detective Sergeant Smythe. In spite of the DNA evidence, it would have likely been enough to have him arrested again, and it was possible that, yes, if the police had stumbled upon Jessica's body before finding Russell, it was likely that Larry would have been arrested and would be sitting where Russell was at that very moment and would have no way to explain the discovery. Justice The day after confessing to Detective Sergeant Smythe, Russell Williams appeared before a Belleville judge and was charged with two counts of murder, two counts of forcible confinement, two counts of breaking and entering, and two counts of sexual assault. He was ordered to remain in custody and scheduled to reappear ten days later on February the 18th. Back inside his tweed home, investigators were still sifting through the evidence that Russell had guided them to during his interrogation. They found boxes upon boxes of stolen underwear, neatly organized and labeled, along with a logbook that, like most things in the colonel's life, was meticulously maintained. It contained dates, addresses, and detailed descriptions of each break-in that the colonel had committed, as well as an itemized list of everything he had stolen. <laughs> Just like compile. He's doing the police works for them, basically, isn't he? Don't write detailed accounts of your crimes. As they poured over this logbook, they discovered that Russell's crimes were far more numerous than they first believed. By this point, he had been breaking into homes and stealing underwear for over three years, and his victims numbered over 100, as he often targeted homes with multiple female occupants in order to more effectively grow his collection. These victims were usually young mothers and their teenage daughters. Even more disturbingly, they also noticed that Russell wasn't content with simply stealing the underwear. Now, do you remember at the beginning of the script when I said that I was too sober to give you any more details? Well, I'm now completely plastered and ready to show you exactly what police found. <laughs> oh, God. While inside their homes, Russell often took time to set up his camera, strip naked, and model his victim's underwear himself. He would use family photographs, often photographs of underage girls, to, uh, another word that I can't say. I've lately had to be careful with these words. Um, let's just say do things to himself on a bed 
uh, while lying in their beds. This inclination allowed police to discover hard drives filled with photographs like these. Russell was so bold that he even revisited the homes of women he sexually assaulted, such as the unnamed mother we discussed earlier. In the days following her assault, Russell entered her home two more times while she was away to rummage for souvenirs and take more photographs of himself. She was completely unaware. In another instance, Russell visited the same house three nights in a row. The first night, he simply stood and watched the home's occupants through an uncovered window. The second night, he stood out on the home's back patio and uh, did things to himself while watching a woman shower. And on the third night, he entered the home, stole underwear from a woman, and then did things to himself in her and her husband's bed. The police knew that Russell had done things to himself because he wrote about it in detail inside his logbook. Inside a nearby filing cabinet, the two SD cards contained graphic footage of Marie-France Camo's assault and murder, while these videos have never been <laughs> released. <laughs> Bloody well hope not. The police said that Marie can be heard begging for her life and saying, I did what you said. I don't deserve this. Along with this, a duffel bag referred to by Russell as his go bag was found that contained Russell's flashlight, mask, zip ties, and rope. The flashlight was later determined to have blood from Jessica Lloyd on it that Russell had been unable to clean off. Although it would be interesting to dive deeper and explore more of his victims, there are simply too many to discuss, and many of them follow the same pattern. Break in, steal underwear, do things to himself, clean up, leave. It wasn't until late in 2009 that Russell became violent, and we have already discussed every significant instance after that time. Based on all this evidence, 82 counts of breaking and entering were added to Russell's list of charges, 46 of which occurred on and around Cozy Cove Lane and Tweed. Russell had broken into every single one of his neighbors' houses except for one, and all but two of them had no clue that these break-ins had occurred. Russell's first ever burglary was committed in September of 2007 inside the home of Monique Murdoch. This was Russell's next-door neighbor. This was especially egregious since the Williamses and the Murdochs often played cards and went ice fishing together, and Russell had even taught Monique's son how to play guitar. Russell and Monique weren't just neighbors. He is a family friend. He had invaded the home and stole panties from her three separate times while she was at work. Throughout the investigation, Russell's wife claimed to have no knowledge of her husband's misdeeds. Based on the fact that she didn't show up in any of the photographs and Russell had gone to such lengths to hide the evidence inside their home, police believed her. Russell's notes were so thorough that it would have been impossible for him not to mention her if she were involved. On April the 3rd, after watching his life fall apart, Russell attempted to escape the consequences of his action by taking his own life inside a cell at Quint Detention Center in Napanee. He did this by shoving toilet paper down his own throat. A suicide note, written in mustard on his cell wall, contained an apology to his victims. But Russell was revived by medics and survived. Six months later, on October the 7th, he appeared in court and pled guilty to all 88 charges laid against him. He was sentenced to life sentences for the two murders and 10 years for the sexual assaults on Cozy Cove Lane, as well as 82 years for the 82 break-ins that he committed from 2007 to 2010. These sentences were to be served concurrently, and Russell Williams will be ineligible for parole for at least 25 years. That means his first opportunity for parole will be in 2035, although it is beyond unlikely that he'll ever be deemed no longer a danger to the public. As soon as he was convicted, Russell was stripped of his military rank and medals and his uniform were destroyed. His Nissan Pathfinder was crushed and scrapped and he was removed from all government websites and RCAF promotional material. His wife was permitted to receive his military pension payouts because, according to authorities, taking away his military pension would require an act of parliament. Dismembered Appendices Number 1. During the investigation into Laurie Mascot's sexual assault, the officers charged with canvassing Cozy Cove Lane ruled Russell out as a suspect based solely on his military rank. After learning who Russell was, one of the officers allegedly remarked, I guess there's no use talking to that guy. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, it's weird and not right how power and money and such 
get you special treatment. Number two, after Russell pled guilty, Larry Jones sued Russell Williams for attempting to frame him. Laurie Masakoff for falsely identifying him and the local authorities in the Royal Crown for arresting him and raiding his home. He was seeking $1.7 million, but his lawsuit was eventually dismissed. Number three, Laurie Massacott, the unnamed mother, and the family of Jessica Lloyd also sued the local authorities for various amounts, and their suits were settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Yeah, what a sad episode about a weirdo who's now in jail for a really long time. Um, yeah, thank you for being here. I hope you found the episode interesting. If you did, please like, subscribe if you're listening as a, uh, to this as a podcast. Uh, yeah, subscribe, leave a review if you can. That would be grand. And I'll see you next time. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.